whether the notion of things we don't discuss in church is strangling our ministry. What's she going to do then? Well, that's what I've been sitting here contemplating. First, I'm going to deliver this case to Marcellus. Then, basically, I'm just going to walk the earth. What you mean, walk the earth? You know, like Kane in Kung Fu. Walk from place to place, meet people, get in adventures. And how long do you intend to walk the earth? Till God puts me where he wants me to be. And what if you don't do that? If it takes forever, then I'll walk forever. Welcome to Walk the Earth. I'm Greg. In some part of continuation of the previous Walk the Earth entry, Walk the Earth 10, I'm going to continue to hit the uh, border between this show and inappropriate conversations. Both of them, of course, can be found on the feed at www.inappropriateconversations.org, and they're both available on Stitcher Smart Radio. But first, a piece of scripture from Matthew chapter 23, Jesus speaking, beginning with verse 25. How terrible for you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of your cup and plate, while the inside is full of what you have gotten by violence and selfishness. Blind Pharisee, clean what is inside the cup first, then the outside will be clean too. How terrible for you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look fine on the outside, but are full of bones and decaying corpses on the inside. In the same way, on the outside you appear good to everybody, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and sins. I want to compare this concept of you know, Jesus' harsh words for the religious leaders of his day and their habit of putting on airs and making themselves seem more important than what they are. And I want to contrast that a little bit with my experience here in the last week or so, really going back to Ash Wednesday. The church that we've been visiting more lately than others had an Ash Wednesday service, which we joined in, and it set itself up with stations, which was very interesting. And one of the stations that was available during that time of worship had a set of stones laid out on a table, and the instructions were to think of the things which are holding you back from your relationship with the Lord, with your prayer life, with reaching out in love to others. What are the things that are holding you down and and What's what's the weight you're carrying around with you? And then to select one of those stones and pray over it, and at the time of communion, because this was an Ash Wednesday service that included communion as well, leave that stone at the altar and try to leave behind whatever it is that you'd identified during that time of prayer that was holding you back. For me... It's very appropriate that I mention it here at the beginning of a Walk the Earth episode, because the thing that I decided was holding me back, the thing that I needed to leave behind, was resentment. I am, and it's probably clear to anybody who's followed the thread of these first 10 or 11 Walk the Earth episodes, carrying around some resentment toward the church we left, some of the specific things that happened, and perhaps even some of the specific people in that church. And I think it's become very important, having had a time of venting, perhaps over the course of 10 months or more, that I leave that behind. So in some ways, I think I'm airing that piece of laundry here. 
in the interest of perhaps setting aside a certain level of accountability for myself, I'd been public enough that somebody could call me on it and say, hey, thought you said you were going to try to let that resentment go, and here it is creeping up again. And I can almost predict that might happen, that over the course of the next few episodes of either Inappropriate Conversations or Walk the Earth, as I get closer to the one-year anniversary of this decision to switch churches, you know, it could creep up again. It easily could, and it's something that I need to be aware of. Having said that, how is it that I'm supposed to make use in my personal life and in my personal walk the words that Jesus shared in Matthew chapter 23? Shouldn't I have a certain amount of resentment? Shouldn't there be a rebuke in my way of dealing with others if they show the same kinds of hypocritical interactions that Jesus sort of lashed out at the Pharisees for doing. Well, there's a couple of points to remember there. First, I'm not Jesus, so I don't know that I'm going to give myself the same leeway. I'm not a believer in the hypocrisy that is love the sinner but hate the sin. Again, I'm not God, and that's a mindset that the Lord reserves for himself. I've been told to love my neighbor. I've been told to love God with all my heart. That's a different command, this love one another idea. It's a very different command than only love people to the degree that you can you know, hold your nose and overcome the stench of the sin that's, that is their life or even who they are. Now, I, I reject that idea, but at the same time, it's going to be a struggle. Because when we look at the question today, there's this notion that I've kind of put it mentally in quotation marks when I write it down. This notion of things we don't discuss in church. And it's funny, and I say it ties into Inappropriate Conversations, because the Inappropriate Conversations podcast mission is all about bringing together those things which aren't welcome at the dinner table. Uh, we shouldn't be talking about politics or sex or religion when the family gets together and has a family gathering. But a funny thing happens, and it's been a deep concern of mine for many years. If you can't raise questions about sexuality within your family, then where in the world can you raise those questions? And if you can't try on different ideas, whether they be ideas of spirituality or ideas of politics or challenging the meaning of history and its relevance to our modern times, if you can't have those conversations in a family setting, then where can you have them? And if you can't ever have them, well, then our, we're in big trouble. We're in big trouble. When you look from a American perspective, at the formation of the United States of America, a lot of these ideas, these political and religious ideas all balled up into one, and notions of how society should be structured, and notions of whether government should be different, those ideas were not just discussed openly at the dinner table inside people's homes. They were discussed openly in places where people publicly gathered to share drink or to share meals. It wasn't unusual for early drafts of Common Sense, the first published editions of that by Thomas Paine, to be read aloud, not just at the public square, but also in places where people came to, to dine, eating establishments, for want of a better word. And certainly, to me, it's appropriate that these things be discussed in the church. Now, what do I mean when I raise a question like, whether the notion of the things we don't discuss in church is strangling our ministry. Well, let me first tell you what I don't think it means. I'm not interested 
in these concepts being spoken necessarily from the pulpit. I don't think that the ideas that I think are being squeezed out of our conversations as Christians need to be delivered from on high in a didactic way from a priest or a pastor telling the congregation what they must think and what they must do. I'm talking about genuine discussion. I'm talking about exploring the boundaries of what we know and being willing to have the humility to say, I want to trust the Holy Spirit to take me where the Lord wants me to go here, that I'm not going to come in with a predetermined notion. So when it comes to this notion of where politics and religion are inappropriately separated from each other, let me just say right up front that those being separated from each other to the extent that that politics isn't preached from the pulpit and religion isn't invoked to pass our laws, probably a very good thing. What I'm talking about from the church perspective is more that small group setting and whether or not there are things which we don't talk about in churches, things where people have actually been in one way or another booted out of churches for having the temerity to even think we could discuss. That's the problem. Because if you look back at the most recent Walk the Earth episode, that's an episode where I'm talking about gay rights, abortion, I'm talking about people burning crosses in people's yards or threatening to burn homes down, prayer in schools, birth control, and hidden and sort of assumed in that topic of birth control, sex education. And perhaps most controversially, perhaps an issue that it wouldn't really shock me if some Christians had never heard this concept before, but the notion of latent bisexuality within the church itself. These are things which probably ought to be discussed. Again, not from the pulpit, and if they do need to be talked about from the pulpit, maybe not at a point in time where all the children are in the room. If there's a, if you're going to a church where at some point the children are escorted out and they have their own children's worship service, but even then, I'm not talking about discussing these issues from the perspective of someone following a lecture series. I'm talking about asking people what they think, where they are, and being willing to pray for people wherever they are, and whatever they think. This same church has a uh, Bible study going on. I guess would be the word you'd use for it. It's actually a book series that is being read and prayed about intensely and discussed in small groups. And interestingly, the church has decided that every small group in the church will follow the same series, and even the Sunday sermon will try to follow along with the topics that go along with that series. It's truly an entire congregation doing a very similar study on the same pattern and at the same time. This was intriguing enough for me to want to participate to the degree that I can. The process of walking the earth is going to take me away from a couple of weeks here and there, but whenever possible, I'm going to attend and participate. And one of the things that jumped out at me in the most recent chapter that I've read was the statement that the Christian life is about two things primarily, in terms of your personal approach to it. It's got to be real, and it's got to be relational. And the interesting thing about relational was that relational was defined as being in conversation, in fellowship, in relationship with other people who were also being real. Well, what does it mean to be real? This may be the most important question facing the church today. Because when I look at 
the interactions that I've had with Christians, particularly those who aren't comfortable with the kinds of things that I think we ought to be talking about inside the church. They are people who, well, to be blunt about it, aren't that interested in being real. Certainly aren't that interested in others being real. Because being real means that we might have to come face-to-face with somebody who's done something that we would prefer the comfort of being in disapproval about. It's difficult to maintain a we-they mentality, to have a firmly entrenched us-versus-them, to have an in-group and an out-group. It's difficult to maintain that if you're face-to-face with somebody that you've decided is in the out-group. And that's really, if you look at the conversation where politics and religion meet in our society today, that really is the question that you face. When you look at burning social issues like the list I just rattled off, things that have been discussed as recently as the most recent episode of Walk the Earth, a lot of it is about those who are in and those who are out. I don't like this kind of dialogue, but I'm going to use it anyway because it seems like it's a good rhetorical question to ask. If you were to be in a Sunday school hour, so before the worship service on a Sunday morning, or perhaps right after or between two worship services, if there's more than one, and you were to gather a group of people together, all adults, 21 or older, just for the sake of argument, and you were to play that podcast for people and say, let's discuss, who are we as a denomination? Here's this person who's walking the earth. Is he saying that he would not feel welcome in our church? Is he saying that he could never join our church? Is he right? Is he wrong? What does it say about our church that he feels this way? And my rhetorical question is, could that podcast even be played aloud for all to hear in a Sunday school classroom with not a single child within earshot? Or would it be inherently too controversial, too unacceptable, because it's talking about things like gays and lesbians, Um, birth control and abortion, other topics. And it really isn't even talking about them in a particularly explicit way. There's no explicit tag on a Walk the Earth episode, and I'll be shocked if there ever is one. But for some churches, the topic itself is taboo. Now, I get this in my life. I always have. I've described myself as the black sheep of every family I've ever been a part of, and I think that's still true today. If you were to ask you know, people in my family candidly for their opinion and said, well, which person in your entire family is the most likely one to say something inappropriate or embarrassing, to bring up a topic that you think shouldn't be brought up, to say something challenging in front of grandma or grandpa that really puts them off? Who's the one who's going to tread on the sacred ground? And I don't think there'd be any question. You wouldn't have to cast multiple ballots to come up with some sort of a majority. You'd have not just a plurality, but an instant majority on the first ballot itself. It's Greg. But that's just who I am. And if there's something wrong with that, then we've got to revisit the concept of whether you're truly being real and relational. If there's stuff you're not allowed to talk about and people you're not allowed to talk about those things with. The church ought to be a place where somebody who's facing an intense temptation, for want of a better word, to commit adultery. The church has to be a place where that person can talk about it before it's being discussed in the past tense, before the damage is done. 
if that person is dealing with an obsession with pornography, if that person's got a gambling issue, if that person is um, drinking or experimenting with drugs or is considering experimenting with drugs, there needs to be a place to have those conversations. I think one of the reasons why throughout most of my lifetime, churches have viewed youth groups, generally speaking, older, entrenched, traditional churches, have viewed youth groups somewhat skeptically, have deemed them to be a little bit dangerous, have always had sort of a a watchful eye over those youth leaders to make sure that they're not up to something. And I think it's because, really, for most of my lifetime, the youth in the church have been facing problems that their families have not equipped them well to handle. The school system certainly hasn't equipped them well to handle. And if it doesn't get addressed inside the youth group, maybe it's not going to get addressed at all until what you're dealing with is a teen pregnancy or a drug dependency, or a suicide attempt, or something worse. I've always wanted to be a part of a church where the youth group was doing whatever had to be done, not necessarily creating scandalous conversation where it's not necessary, but where it's necessary, going there and having those conversations. But here's the other issue that I've got. If you're not having a conversation as a group of adults with the youth leaders, if the adults of the church aren't allowed to have these conversations. Well, then you're really tying one hand behind your back from a theology perspective, from a ministry perspective, from an education and outreach perspective. You're not talking about the things that matter most. When I look at some of the perversions in Christianity in the last, say, 200 years, give or take, most of those perversions have thrived more in the last 30 years than they did in the 150 years before it, because we've stopped allowing ourselves to discuss these things. I would cite the left-behind, quote-unquote, theology as an example. Concepts which crept into Christianity during the 19th century, by and large, primarily, and which don't have much foothold or any real reference in the early church. And yet, this notion of being left behind, this notion of a pre-tribulational rapture, all that other sort of stuff, very recent, and for many years was held down into a splinter group. We're literally talking about the ideas of, of a small European group like the Plymouth Brethren. They didn't spread widely beyond that, or at least not much beyond that, because they would get challenged. They get they get challenged by people who had a strong theology, who would raise very specific questions. Questions like, please show me anywhere in the Bible where you find a reference to a pre-tribulational rapture. And let's just leave the book of Revelations out for a moment. Where's the supporting material behind that? And you'll find that when those conversations really happen, when committed Christians pray, read scripture, and have a deep discussion about it, you'll find that almost all the references that some Christians take for granted today as being about rapture are really about the second coming of Christ. One and done. Not a big secret deal. Not a once now and I'm going to be back later for a curtain call. But one and done. I'm referring specifically to the letters of Paul to the church at Thessalonica. Those letters don't refer to rapture. And yet, for now... Many people in the church have just assumed that they do because we don't discuss theology. So you got Sunday school classes where people aren't really talking about theology in any great detail. They're certainly not talking about social issues, or if they're doing so, they're doing so in a somewhat superficial way, where 
other perspectives aren't necessarily welcome. You're more likely to get yourself kicked out of a Sunday school class for raising questions like, please explain to me what Jesus said about homosexuality, than you are for, you're going to be welcomed in the class. We're just assuming that whatever church fathers, quote-unquote, have believed for 150 years or 1,500 years, that's enough. And that there's no need to go back to Jesus to seek guidance. You see, I think that I'm dealing today with Christians in many, many instances who do not take seriously the notion that when Jesus was walking the earth and speaking words that he expected to be shared, first via oral tradition, perhaps later having been written down, that these were the words of God himself. I mean, Christians don't seem to have much problem identifying Jesus as Jesus is Lord, Jesus is God, Jesus is part of the Trinity. But they don't take seriously the idea that we should look at his words, his parables, his well, even his rebukes of people like Peter and Pharisees as an example of God himself speaking. And maybe, just maybe, the more crucial concept for the church today isn't what did Jesus say, but what did Jesus not say? And what does it mean if someone with perfect knowledge chooses not to express an opinion? Can we assume that Jesus agrees with everything I may think, if for whatever reason he chose to withhold an opinion back then, knowing that people were listening to his words with an intent to share them and to eventually write them down? I think really it comes back to a concept I introduced a few shows ago from an historian named Martin E. Marty. And Marty referred to American Christianity in particular as being populated by behaviors rather than believers. His expression was, we have become a nation of behaviors. What does that look like? How will we know if he's describing things accurately? I think a nation of behaviors would look like people who are worried about cleaning their cup and their plate from the outside and not worrying so much about what may be inside because what's inside is going to be kept secret. It's not going to be shared. A nation of behaviors will be much more worried about the tombstone and how nicely the grass is cut and how fresh the flowers are laid upon the grave than they will be about what's inside the grave and whether the person met an end for untoward reasons. The church is much more interested, in other words, in condemning certain things in that list of topics that I mentioned from the last show than they are in reaching out to those people who are actually the victims or the consequences of the things that we find to be controversial. If we have people in our churches today who are, as I suspect, genuinely struggling with a latent bisexuality, and become aware of their bisexuality, because society is talking about these issues, whether the church chooses to do so or not. Does that person have to leave the church? Because they now no longer fit in, because they're now part of the out group, and they're recognizing it for the first time? Or should they be talking about an insider fellowship? More importantly than that, though, maybe the group of people who struggle with these issues, not because they're actually bisexual, and therefore they think that Sexual identity is a choice because they're feeling like there's a choice somewhere deep down within them. Maybe the other group we need to be ministering to just as much. Maybe the group that are genuinely and truly hypocritical. The people who are demonstrating the same twisted set of values that Jesus denounces the Pharisees for in Matthew chapter 23. 
willing to maintain a public standard and conceal what's in their hearts from a private standard, whether that be questions about their own sexual identity or whether it be the hate and the duplicity that they hold in their hearts. You see, I'm a believer in the theory of triangle. I heard this originally, or at least the first time it stuck in my mind, was at a wedding ceremony where the pastor who was officiating over that ceremony was talking to the soon-to-be-married couple about what to do when their relationship grows and evolves and there's conflict. On the one hand, I find it amusing when pastors choose that particular setting to go into this kind of detail. Because, having been you know a groom at the altar, you're not going to remember that much of what is being said if it's that sort of personal advice. The ritual is going to mean a lot to you, who you're with, and all that. But if you're a pastor and you want to tell people how to avoid marital conflict, you might want to do that in counseling sessions and conversations long before you get to everybody dressed in tuxedos and wedding gowns. Having said that, though, he was talking about his theory of triangle, and it was that one of the advantages Christians have is that when you have a relationship with Jesus Christ— and you're in a relationship with someone else who has a relationship with Jesus Christ, where there's conflict, where there's confusion, where there's difficulty, if each one of you prayerfully and seriously takes that to the Lord, you will be brought back together just like the sides of a triangle. Because there's sort of a navigating to a north star there. For some people, this is scripture, but I think that's a mistake. Because I think that one of the issues, and another issue in the church today, is the worship of Scripture. Now, it's better to seek Jesus, to seek God, and Scripture can help with that. Prayer can certainly help with that. But it's best to avoid worshiping a ritual, and it's certainly best to avoid worshiping the words on a page. Better to focus on Jesus, and it will bring people together. Meaning that if you want to have a very challenging conversation about what the Bible says about abortion and how it can guide you into dealing with questions of ministering to people who have had an abortion or who have been part of a practice that performed abortion. Well, that's going to require you to seek Jesus first and to ask very challenging questions and to deal with multiple translations of the Bible and multiple points of view from across, say, the political spectrum. If the issue being discussed in one of these small groups is truly uh, a political question or one that has been turned into a political you know, question by the powers that be, that is a way of bringing people together. And maybe the best you can do in some of those conversations is leave it with, perhaps we'll have to agree to disagree on this point. The fact that there are multiple translations of the Bible means that there are going to be situations where people read the Bible differently. That, of course, is true even when you're looking at the same translation, truth be known. But at the very least, it would be best to be having the conversation, to be having the conversation in an environment so safe that someone confessing that they're dealing with you know, anger issues and are thinking about committing some sort of crime, some sort of act of vengeance, that it's best if that be handled within a community of faith than to have a whole bunch of people pretending that that underlying pressure isn't there. Because this is church for crying out loud, and in church we're not going to talk about anything ugly. I think we'll find that the early church was, in many ways, much more enlightened than we are today. 
in terms of their willingness to deal with whatever issues might arise. The book of Acts, for example, details an account of somebody who is you know, falls dead right there in the small group meeting, in the community of faith, and does so for what? For not being honest, for lying, for in some ways blaspheming the Holy Spirit by assuming that the Lord that we all seem to acknowledge understands what's in our heart and knows us more intimately than we may be able to to, to say we know ourselves if we're good at lying to ourselves, that you're making a mistake if you're not honest within the body of Christ. In the book of Acts, there's a couple of people who are struck dead for that specific type of dishonesty. And maybe that's the answer to the question, right? Because underlying here is a question of what makes people so afraid of talking about things that are difficult and controversial? And part of it is just this notion of being a nation of behaviors, that we really aren't that interested in whether people truly believe in anything that the Bible says, as long as they act like they do. That we're not that interested in whether people actually are living lives that are productive and positive sexually with their, with their spouse. We just want to make sure that everyone puts on a good front, puts on a good show. I've often thought when I'm dealing with the way the church interacts with homosexual people, is that the number one priority seems to be just making sure people don't act the way I don't want them to act. I mean, if you go in to a bakery in a place like Georgia or Arizona or Kansas and pretend you're straight, they'll make you a cake. They, they, may, they may even make you a cake in honor, to honor the fact that you're at least faking it good. That what they want to do is they want to be able to turn you down if they're put off by your honesty. I guess is the real truth behind the matter. And it's a truth that cuts so deeply into what's wrong in the church today that I fear that there's probably many people in the church today who can't even be honest enough with themselves to acknowledge that that's really well and truly what we're talking about. We probably need to have churches all over America having small group conversations about we whether or not we really are asking people to lie, if not to themselves, at least to others, on questions of sexuality. The reality is, though, I fear we're not going to have that conversation because we're not supposed to talk about those kinds of things inside the church. And that's the problem. And that's why I would say yes is the answer to this question of whether or not the notion of things we don't discuss in church is strangling our ministry. It's absolutely strangling our ministry. And it's doing so in a way that's probably more dangerous than I've even conveyed. We've stopped people who are already part of the body of Christ from sharing what's troubling them from grabbing the stone that's in their life and putting it at the altar because they would bypass that table in a worship service like the one I described at the opening because if the pastor or the associate pastor or somebody asked them what their stone was about, they couldn't own up to it because their stone might be something we just don't talk about in the church today. We need to dredge up those stones because they're making the waters of our faith too shallow, too shallow to be of use to anybody else. Because I'm talking about what happens inside the church itself with people who are members of the same church and have been for years and have a relationship with each other. How clean can you come into conversation with somebody if to do so acknowledges that you've actually been lying to them for years? Unless, of course, it can first start with some forgiveness because some of these people have actually been lying to themselves for years. How in the world are you going to reach others 
if two things are true in your church. One, you're unwilling to talk about any of this stuff. Or two, if somebody did bring it up, you'd ask them to leave. That we don't want somebody from the outside bringing that influence into our doors. Early on in the first year of Inappropriate Conversations, in an episode called Chapter and Verse, I shared some poetry, and, and the theme behind the poem was the things that are you know kind of hypocritical in the way we do religion today. And one of the points that I raised was that I don't believe taking the Lord's name in vain has much at all to do with profanity. It may not be ideal, which people um, use certain words angrily or to upset the status quo or to put people off, but it certainly isn't a big deal if three people have a common set of values and are comfortable with words that you, you know, might not you know, find on television. That's not what taking the Lord's name in vain is about. Taking the Lord's name in vain is less about the concept of magic words and more about people who lie in the name of Christ. Somebody who stands up and said, God once, had, I had a vision from God, and he's told me he wants you to write me a check for $1,000, and if you do, he's going to give you a brand new car and a house. That person's taking the Lord's name in vain. That person's operating on a prosperity gospel, give-to-get scheme, to make himself rich at the expense of people who probably don't have either the resources, or in this case, the wisdom, to be going without those resources. That is taking the Lord's name in vain. And perhaps we take the Lord's name in vain, not just by the things we say, but the things we refuse to hear, the things we don't let other people say. Two of the things that interest me more than anything else, from a small group perspective, are what are the things that we should be saying to each other that we aren't? And what are the things in the Gospels that Jesus didn't talk about that are relevant to the problems facing so many people in the church today. This isn't just a youth group issue. It isn't just kids who are dealing with bullying. It isn't just kids who are dealing with temptation to abuse alcohol and drugs. It isn't just kids who are facing questions of their own sexuality and how they should behave sexually around others and with others. My opinion is that I think that describes not just the church, but society as a whole pretty well. And I think it would be a tragedy if youth groups didn't have the answers that kids need being provided. And I think it's also a tragedy when the rest of the church doesn't either, because we're more obsessed with things we ought to say, things we ought to do, and how we ought to appear, than recognizing that the only thing Jesus says we ought to do is be real and be relational. Go and make disciples. But do so genuinely. When I talk about going out and re meeting people where they are, meeting people genuinely, it can't begin with an assumption that because, you know, 1,500 years ago a pope said something was sinful or an abomination or didn't exist or, or read certain passages in the Bible in a certain way, then now I can't, I can't interact with those people. That's not allowed. There's, there needs to be a line there. I've got to protect my inness at the expense of their outness. That's a problem. But an even bigger problem is that so many churches today are, are not even willing to talk about their own inness and how sinful it is when it's compared with their perceived outness of other people. When 
theologically when you ask them. They'll acknowledge right up front that Jesus died for all of us. If and as you are led, please join me in prayer. Our Lord and our Redeemer, Jesus, your wisdom permeates the scriptures and is something that as a church I believe we're called to share with each other, to discuss, to evaluate. Jesus, help us to understand that your wisdom extends not just the words that we find on the page, but the words we don't. Lord, we get together as Christians and we pray. And we focus on our own time in engaging in prayer. We ask questions like, Lord, what would you have me do? But sometimes I think we don't listen for the answer. Or sometimes, perhaps, we're afraid to ask the question. Because there's something uncomfortable about some of the things which you might have us, where you might have us go, how you might have us minister, questions that we might have to face that we prefer not to face. So Jesus says we read scripture as we pray. In my case, as I visit churches and, and try to learn uh, from the different things that you might be sharing with different congregations in different ways. Help us to understand what it is that we're doing wrong when we're putting up a front, when we're more interested in our image of our goodness and our righteousness and our holiness, when really those concepts are well and truly reserved for you, Lord, our Redeemer and our Savior. Jesus, save us from ourselves. Save us from our hypocrisy and help me by saving me from any hidden resentment. In your holy name we pray. Amen. What happened this morning, man, I agree, it was peculiar. But water into wine, I... All shapes and sizes, Vincent. You shouldn't talk to me that way, man. If my answers frighten you, Vincent, then you should cease asking scary questions. Next on Walk the Earth, whether the concept of tithing applies to the giver or to the church as the receiver. Thanks for listening.